0: Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Kron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, MarcusCron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Shane Melanson, who has a broad range of experience across all aspects of commercial real estate investing and development. So Shane will bring a lot of insight into commercial real estate, so you're definitely going to want to listen to this episode. So Shane, welcome to
1: the show, man. Marcus, thanks, good to be here.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, you know, anticipate you adding a lot of value to my listeners. So I just want to give a little bit of an introduction on Shane. So he's known as the Arbitrage Architect, where he helps high income earners convert their income to net worth. He's a commercial developer in Calgary, Canada, having completed more than $65 million in real estate projects and helping his clients buy and sell more than a quarter billion dollars worth of commercial real estate. Shane has invested in projects across Canada and the Southwest U.S., so you've uh, accomplished a lot, Shane, and I want you to kind of touch on your story and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself
1: and your current focus. Sure, sure. So um, I, uh, I think sometimes uh, people see commercial real estate investors, whether it's apartments or industrial retail, and they think that that's kind of where everyone starts. And, and that's, um, that was about five years into my journey. So I initially started off, uh, buying and flipping houses. I did some spec uh, houses and developments. And I got a job at Sun Life Commercial as a lender. And there is where I first basically was introduced to the concept of commercial real estate and syndications. And there was a couple of gentlemen that came in one day and they were uh, pretty savvy, sophisticated guys, but they were not putting up all the money for this, their first in, industrial uh. It might have been a retail uh, project, and I started to learn about how average people could essentially invest in commercial deals. I say average, but you know, obviously they they had some uh, they had some money, uh, but really what they had was a skill set to identify the right properties and then raise capital. And so uh, that that intrigued me because I felt like I was putting in a lot of energy and effort into buying houses, either renting them out, fixing them up, and sure I was making okay money as a younger, you know, 25, 26 year old, but it was like a second job and it really wasn't getting me closer to quote unquote financial independence. So uh, uh, fortunately when I was at Sun Life, I met my my now wife, Kelly, and her dad was uh, a commercial developer. Uh, Their family company has been around for over 95 years here in, in Canada and he took me under his wing and showed me essentially how to find the right properties, how to raise capital And, uh, and so we went on kind of a journey, if you will, of finding opportunistic value add deals. So we were in Palm Springs, bought a portfolio of houses. We did some first mortgages across Canada. We did, I think I mentioned some, those resorts or mobile homes out in Ontario. And it was great because I got a a diverse background. Uh, But in hindsight, it would have been better to focus. Right. And that's, it seems like that's kind of what you're Company is focused on, right? Multifamily. And frankly, that's kind of an asset class that uh, I'm most interested in. And I do have uh, experience in that. So we can talk about that. Happy to talk about industrial, retail, uh, however you want to go.
0: So, yeah, that's what like. You're so diverse and you have so much experience across numerous asset classes. But, you know, rewind a little bit like, how did you even get involved in real estate in the first place? I mean, you mentioned you were, you know, mid 20s and kind of doing the hustle of single family, whether they be fix and flips, what kind of prompted you to take the jump into real estate?
1: Um, well, so I grew up in um, White Court, Alberta, which is a logging town and pretty small town, like eight or 9,000 people. And um, I initially, uh, basically I built logging roads when I was going through university. That's how I paid for my, my education, if you will. And I remember one year I was back in Whitecourt Court uh, working a friend of mine came to my dad and I, showed us an opportunity to invest in. And uh, I didn't know any better. I was 19 at the time. Uh, my dad, both my parents are teachers, and they refinanced their house at about $100,000 $100, to invest in this opportunity, this deal. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the deal went sideways and we lost everything. And so for the next like four years, I thought all investing was a scam. I didn't trust people. I was very skeptical. And then, um, because I was living in, the, in, in my buddy's basement suite, and, and here he is going to rain meetings. Uh, he had maybe three or four properties. He was working at a bar. And here I am working downtown Calgary and, and just hoarding money and saving. But I, I wasn't investing, I wasn't getting ahead. And, uh, uh, anyways, long story short, he kind of suggested that I uh, maybe consider it. So picked up a book, Robert Kiyosaki, picked up, uh, Don Campbell's books, started to read about it, uh, took the plunge, bought my first property. And then I just started to see that. Uh, so I bought a townhouse to live in. Then I got a friend to rent for me and I was paying less to own my own house. Cause I had a renter and I thought, well, I could do this again. And so I just, you know, I, I, when you're young, you don't really know that much. And so it, it was almost a benefit to, uh, uh, that ig- ignorance was, was bliss almost in the sense that uh, Calgary was going up. And so it covered up a lot of my mistakes. And uh, I was able to buy and sell you know, probably 20 or 30 houses in a very short amount of time. Uh, so it worked out. And, but like I said, it was a second job. And so that was always in the back of my mind. Like, How do I actually break free and generate enough revenue to uh, stop working you know, for Sun Life? My first job was actually at the City of Calgary. I was in the assessment department, and uh, so in in assessment, when you're new, they would basically say, uh, here are two sales of the same house, and this is something I don't really even talk about because I I, I think I kind of forgot about it, but uh, what I would do is I'd get this list, and maybe there'd be 200 houses, and I would look at it, and I'd say, okay, this house sold for 400, then it sold for 550, what happened? So you'd go on MLS and you'd realize, oh, they did a bunch of renovations and, but the renovations never added up. So the, so I could tell that it was someone that was basically fixing and flipping and you could see the neighborhoods, the size of the house, you know? So I just started to analyze and figured out what the best areas were, the types of homes that were, that people were doing well with. And that was essentially how I got my education on how to uh, figure out, you know, fixing and flipping.
0: Yeah, so you were just really in the trenches and, and yeah. you know, being the assessor and uh, also being on the lender side of thing, You just really learned the, the numbers, the assessment, the analyzing, and really understood deals from a you know, very high level and broad perspective. I know you already alluded to it, but it's like, hey, you're, you're doing these flips, uh, you're doing single family, you're doing smaller projects. It just felt like a job for you, like another job. Was it just that experience that felt like another job or what kind of pushed you to be like, hey, commercial is the way to go? Where was that point in time where you realized that?
1: well um it, it it came from a conversation that I had with Andy, and he was basically watching what it what it, what I was doing, right and uh, uh I had s- significant success at a young age and in in terms of but you have to remember, like a lot of it was predicated on the market just going up, right? I started in 04 investing in Calgary. And so between '06 and '08, the market was just climbing. You didn't really have to be that smart. Um, but when you're new, you don't realize that you think that you have kind of the Midas touch that you're, that you, you know, everything you touch kind of turns to gold. Well, uh, I remember going to a seminar, uh, where I had just sold a house and I'd done extremely well on it. And I felt like I had this real pressure to invest and get that money back out the door right? To keep on recycling it. And I went to this event and I don't want to say kind of who it was because it's, it's a, it's a very well-known kind of company. And it was, they were pitching, investing in Costa Rica. And so I basically bought a $250,000 us, uh, or actually, I think when it was all said and done, it was about 250 because I financed it and it was expensive. Um, But that lesson uh, I still own that lot um, <laughs> i mean it, it it was it was a, far worse than the deal that I' had done with my dad because there I only lost thirteen thousand dollars. this case it's two hundred and fifty and um uh andy didn 't say too much to me, but it was kind of like, look if you know you're doing well, but uh if you want to learn how to invest in commercial real estate, come on a trip with me, so we flew down to Houston we flew to uh uh um Palm Springs, we were looking at some deals and and just the way that he conducted business was so different than anything i 'd ever seen. Uh, the level of sophistication, um, the questions the just the research required, uh, I could tell that i was I, I needed to expand my knowledge and really you know, take this seriously. Because like I said before, you're just investing, you're putting in offers. You really didn't have to consider the downside because there wasn't a lot of downside. You start losing money in one or two deals and you realize that uh, there's probably some things that you don't know. And so surrounding yourself with the right group of people is just so critical. And I see that, I mean, when I was a commercial broker, I saw that so often. Guys that had no idea or no business investing in commercial properties bought one, um, at at the peak of a market. And then now they're feeding it 20 grand a month because they can't get out of it. It's 50% vacant. There's no parking. There's all these functional issues with the deal. And, um, and then they come to us. Right. And so I, I, anyways, it's, uh, uh, it's one of the reasons I have my own podcast and why I do this, right. To be able to hopefully educate people. So,
0: yeah. So my main takeaway from that is it was really kind of going under the wing of a mentor, somebody that can kind of guide you along in the journey, has a level of sophistication, can teach you things, but also push you in your own learning to be like, hey, like I've got to step up my game, step up my education, step up my sophistication in how I'm doing this investment side of things. And I've actually heard you talk about, I think it was on another podcast interview, I heard you talking about commercial real estate being a club. Could you talk about what that means?
1: Sure. And how do you yeah, get into that? Well, club? so yeah, my, I mean, my, my book, I called club syndication, right? Because it's, uh, it, I mean, commercial real estate from my experience is very relationship based and driven. And so when, um, someone new to the game of real estate wants to go into commercial real estate, I mean, the difference is there might be like three commercial brokers that control the multifamily market here in Calgary right Houston Dallas i mean there's there's like the go to guys that like uh th- then there's a handful of them right and so if you don't know them and they don't know you and they don't give you the time of day it's so difficult to penetrate that market however if you have someone that can basically walk you in or you're able to to leverage that credibility off of someone right so if you like like a person with $20 million going into a new market in a hot market like Dallas, for example, you're probably still not going to get taken seriously because unfortunately if you have no uh, uh, experience closing deals um, then the brokers look at that and say there's uh, what do you call it? like there's uh, uncertainty as to whether or not you're actually going to close on a deal. I'll give you a great example. So when I was working uh, with uh, a company to sell a 240 unit apartment building in Dallas. They, like I was working alongside with Brickadia. So Brickadia, they're one of the the major players down there. And so I was really kind of like, um, uh, I wasn't on the listing side, if you will, but I was the interface to the company here in Canada that was selling it. And so I was on all the calls and I was basically given direction. I was like the owner's rep. And so uh, I remember we were on a call with a hedge fund out of New York. $5 billion hedge fund. The biggest deal they'd ever bought was 60 units. And so when they wanted to buy an A-class multifamily and they're going up against guys that had 50,000 units, like you're pre-qualifying these guys. I I was just shocked. Like I was listening on the phone thinking to myself, like you're talking to a guy that's worth three to $5 billion and you're asking those type of questions. I I just couldn't believe it, but that was the game. And so when I talk about a club, Like he was, he even said, he's like, look, the reason you're talking to me is because a, you, I I'm probably half a million higher than the next guy. And I'm putting up non-refundable money. And you're probably asking, am I a flake? Am I actually going to do this deal? And so he was like mind reading, right? Like he had been through this before. And, uh, he just said, look, here's our investing philosophy. Here's why we want to buy this property. We're not stupid. We have a long-term approach. And, um, uh, at the end of the day, we, we went with, with this, uh, with this group, they did close, and now all of a sudden they're in the club. Right now they can go out and say, "Hey, we just closed on two hundred and forty. We want the next deal and the next deal." Um, obviously, that that that's that's big. But you can even scale that down into smaller deals too. Uh, does that answer your question? I don't, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it totally does. And you referred to your book there, uh, Club Syndication. I was actually just on your website yesterday. Yeah. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of resources on Shane's website. I'll let him talk about that later and, and yeah. some of the ways to get in touch with him. But the book, I haven't read it yet, just got it yesterday, but interested in kind of learning more and what you kind of talk about in your book, Club Syndication. So really excited about that. So you mentioned kind of the, the troubles of getting into that club and, and the challenges and building credibility to yeah. kind of play in that arena with other bigger players. What are some of the challenges you faced, and and how did you build your credibility to kind of take the step into that? Let's call it the big leagues of commercial real estate.
1: Sure. So um, uh, th- there's a couple of different ways, right? And and I don't want to I don't want to to make this sound like it's either uh, really like near impossible because it's not, or that it's very easy because it's not that either. Um, number one is like where are you in the market cycle? So for example, in going into the U.S. Uh, When we went down in 08, 09, uh, the market was very slow. There was not many buyers. So when I hit up this uh, lady on LinkedIn at Collier's, one of the top commercial brokers in 09, A, LinkedIn wasn't being used nearly as much. And B, she was still showing up to work. She had a property that she needed to sell. This was in uh, Sugarland, Houston. And uh, so she returned my call, right? She took the time to actually tour me on the deal. Now, that was a deal that we ended up doing. But the, the point is, the market was slow. And so she was going to field an unknown. Now, I still knew enough to be able to talk the language. And then um, and then actually, yeah, I'm just trying to think whether or not. No, there was no relationship there prior to. I had, I had set that up. But as soon as that deal happened, then the next deal. And now you're on the radar of all the brokers because you're real. You're in the game. So that's that's kind of number one. Number two is... Um, you can ask for connections, if you will, right? You can look for relationships. So it might be like a lawyer that you know, and you have a relationship with, and they say, you know what, they vouch for you and they go to a commercial broker, right? Because the brokers are usually the hardest guys to deal with, at least in my experience, right? The mortgage guys, they can be a little bit standoffish, but for the most part, they're very uh, accommodating. At least that that's been my my uh, perspective and experience, but on the on the investment side, because the brokers they only get paid for deals that close, and and it's not to be crass or harsh, but the the challenge is like they're selling their time, and so they've got like their hit list, right? Like this is a deal that's in progress. This is a deal I've listed. This is and so way down here is this new person that's never bought before that says they want to get into it, but is there a social connection? Is there a relationship? Is there, right? And so if a lawyer says, Hey, I want you to help this guy out. He wants to buy, he's the real deal. They, the broker is not going to want to um, uh, piss off that lawyer or that relationship, right? Because he might get sent a lot of deals. And so you just have to think about where are the leverage points to be able to kind of penetrate and break in and having, um, uh, someone that can can introduce you that that that's pretty uh, valuable, I think, and I was very fortunate right? I had my father in law i mean his his name is is uh, well known, and so that helped propel me and now I don't need that now I've got my own name. that's really great insight, and I mean, you're referring to
0: brokers kind of being standoffish. They're not like what you would see in a uh, residential uh, real no. estate agent <laughs> you know where no. they're begging you to call them. And as soon as they get a call, they're running down to show you the place. They're kind of qualifying you as the buyer. If you're going to invest in that property, if it's a 10, 15, $20 million deal, and you've never closed one, how can they be certain that you can bring the cash to the table? You can do the due diligence and actually close on the deal. Yeah. So they're, like you said, selling their time. So they don't want to really waste their time with somebody that is inexperienced and uh, doesn't have some type of Connection, so it's important to find ways, like you said, leveraging relationships and introductions to to kind of break into commercial real estate. So, no, those are really good points. I kind of want to steer the conversation to what you're focusing on now. Our listeners haven't really got much of a flavor on development and ground up development. So, can you kind of talk about what you currently are focusing on and speak to development?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, right now I've um, I wrapped up an industrial condo development, uh, which, uh, which we, can, we can chat about. And then I've also got, uh, I'm currently in the process of uh, retail development, where we have an anchor tenant, uh, they're a gas station, and uh, well, you're out in, in BC, so you'll know this. So we have triple O's as well that, that are there. So our anchor tenant essentially has secured enough income that the deal makes sense. So we, the way I develop is not on spec or speculating. Um, I will only proceed with a deal when I've got a certain level of either pre-sales or pre-leasing, right? So on the retail deal we had um, pre-leasing that covered uh, the deal to the point where if that's all we did, we would get like a 4% return. But we've got half a site ready now and we're actually negotiating um, uh, two leases that will that will push the returns to um, well, I, I won't even tell because it'll seem too unrealistic, but there, it'll be extremely attractive for our investors and for me as a, as a partner. Um, the industrial development, what we did on that was quite interesting. So this is in 2017, I believe, and the, um, <clears throat> the market was a little bit slower. So we went to uh, the, it was a big developer. We gave them the price they wanted. So this is something that I think, n- like people that are in residential, they may not necessarily know this. We tried to negotiate, but they basically said no. Here's the number, and I'm like, okay, if you get the number, I want the terms. So I asked for f- four months, I believe, due diligence, and in that time, I spent about twenty thousand dollars with an architect. And the idea was, uh, I went to even though I I was a commercial broker at the time or a commercial lead, um, agent. Um, I didn't have the connections, right? And so even though I could have made very good money as, a, as an agent there, uh, I hired people that were in that community that were gonna get the pre-sales for me. So um, I hired them, I said, look, you pre-sale 65%, I'll close on the land. But when I say pre-sale, I don't want you know, BS, LOIs that are flaky, like I want purchase and sale agreements that are predicated on me basically getting a development permit or a DP and at that point uh their money becomes non-refundable but that money is going to go into our lawyer's trust account so we pre-sold about 65 70% before we were removed conditions that was basically going to mean that if all we did was close on those deals that we would be uh break even um and then we still had 30% by the time we closed uh, a month later we were 100% pre-sold and i went to our our agents and i said guys even though we're 100% pre-sold, I want you to get me backup offers. And the reason for that is, even though I've got, I think it was about 11% down, guys change their mind, they back out, they cancel deals, and I don't want that. So I'm, I'm hypersensitive to um, just having gone through many different cycles for granted. Uh, I think in, in commercial real estate, you have to be hyper-conservative and, and just sensitive that things change. And uh, just because someone says they're going to do something, in my experience, it doesn't necessarily always mean that they're going to follow through. And so for me, I always want to have like backups and uh, redundancy. I don't know if that that kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the big differences when you talk about the variables and and the timelines and, and how things can change. One of the big differences between ground up development and investing into a stabilized asset where there's already operating history, buying something that's already built. So you don't have to wait for that timeline to to go through before you can sell and have, and have your liquidity event, payback investors and all that. Can you talk about some of the challenges that puts on you as the developer that you have to face that
1: you might not see in a stabilized asset? There are many challenges. So just from uh so number 1 I'm not like um even though I'm a developer my partner is really the guy that has a lot of the construction experience uh he's got about 25 years and so I really lean heavy on him I'm more on like the capital raising finding deals you know sales marketing raising capital uh but I I I'm uh, I want to make sure I understand the development process so uh for example uh here in Calgary you got to get to DSSP so that's your deep services that's your storm water, et cetera. Well, that can take four months, right? And, and then you start to learn about, okay, well, you like if you break ground going into the winter, you got heating and hoarding that wasn't included in that tender. And when that tender package went out, so the tender is basically your costing, right? So we got a fixed price contract, but there's so many exclusions in that fixed price contract, like tariffs on steel, Well, when Canada and the U S all of a sudden got into a bit of a battle and the tariffs went from X to, you know, 28% higher. Now my budget on $800,000 just went up another hundred and some odd thousand. Right. And that's, and, and you don't realize that until you start getting into, you know, these tender packages and, uh, and then you get delays. And I mean, it's just number one, uh, you want to make sure that you understand the game and you have someone that that has done it before, because otherwise you will just get crushed in my experience. Like, I mean, if I didn't have my, my partner, Jason, uh, it would have been, uh, it would have been very trying times. Number two, you want to have more money than you think you're going to need because there are going to be cost overruns. And the other thing is when you get a construction draw versus when you have to pay your, uh, GC, sometimes they don't always meet up right? And sometimes that first construction draw, let's say it's for, you know, your footings and your concrete and et cetera, but we had to pre-order steel. So there's just timing issues. And so if you're running like on, you know, like a 5% contingency, it's not enough money. You, you, you can, I mean, you just drive around see the number of projects that get stalled out. And it's usually from, it it can even be experienced uh, developers. It's, it's not a game for the faint of heart, I, I don't think new people to commercial real estate should start in a development. It's uh, it's lucrative and it sounds exciting, uh, and it is, but it's also uh, high risk, and which is why it's high reward.
0: Yeah, exactly. The you summed it up there: high risk, high reward. Um, that's why you can get kind of those more attractive returns than what you might see in a stabilized asset. And I know you've already kind of touched on various aspects of it, but you know, on a very high level, could you kind of walk through some of the key steps or milestones taking a project from initial concept Uh through to exit when you're actually selling or exiting the deal. Could you kind of walk through some of those very high level key milestones that would need to be met to bring a development project full cycle?
1: So number one, I buy land for the most part that's already zoned, right? If you're going to buy land that's unzoned or needs to be rezoned, add six to 12 months and a hundred thousand dollars probably for a planner to be able to help you with that. So the, the sites I've uh, bought were already zoned the retail site. We actually rezoned. Um, and that's why I know how much it costs and how long it takes, but, uh, but the zoning that we had in place would have worked. Uh, we just wanted to open it up for more uses. So you want to understand, okay, what is the zoning? What are the permitted uses? What are the discretionary uses and what's the density and et cetera. Um, you're gonna obviously make sure all the services are to the site or how much it's gonna to cost to get to the, to the site, what's your access. So you do that in your due diligence. What's the demand um, and will they pay the rates, right? Next, I'm gonna verify how much is my construction costs, right, because the market is gonna be what the market is, right? I don't, um, I don't reverse engineer into a deal to, to make the numbers work. What I wanna do is what are the rates either rental or for sale. And then what are my costs? And then I wanna make sure the delta is big enough to make sure that I can cover um, any, any mistakes, right? Um, so phase one, letter of intent, then I go to purchase and sale agreement. Uh, I don't know how detailed, but I'll generally raise the money through my due diligence phase, uh, remove conditions once I have my equity lined up, I'll understand what my debt is going to be. I usually close cash on the land, And then I will raise and I'll have the equity there. And that's essentially for um, uh, to to be able to buy the land and then have enough for soft costs. And then we'll get our construction financing in place. We usually go to a tier one bank so that they're attractive, put up personal guarantees. So be prepared for that. And um, at that point, it's like, you know, you're going to have your architectural drawings you're going to have your DP drawings. Then you're going to go to tender. You're going to have a building permit. Then you're going to actually break ground. Uh, at you know, we don't always go to like we don't always tender to multiple GCs. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we go to one GC. They tender it out to all the subs because we have a good relationship with them, and then we negotiate directly with that general contractor. Um, that's because we have a very good relationship and a high level of trust. Sometimes it's necessary to get multiple bids. Um, What can I say? I mean, as you start getting close to construction being completed, then you're obviously working uh, with the brokers in terms of whether it's the agent or the um, tenant or the buyers. And you want to make sure that they have enough time to secure their financing or they can start to uh, do their TIs. And you want to make sure that you're working together because you're going to have the primary which is our general contractor. And then you're going to have the tenants general, you know, and they got to work together. And I can tell you that doesn't always happen. I mean, there's, there's some conflict. And as the owner, you're the one that really has to kind of resolve that, right? Because you want to make sure that, you're, uh, that the deal goes smooth and that um, at the end of the day, you're going to inherit that tenant and you don't want to start off on a bad foot. And so it's really, you know, showing up to site meetings every week, every two weeks, It's uh, talking to the city, making sure that they're comfortable, that you're going to get your COA. Um, Yeah,
0: Uh, you were sharing a lot of insight there into numerous steps that are involved. And as you can see, it's not just we're going to put together this development deal and you're just off and running. There's a lot of thought that goes into it, a lot of timelines, managing the project, bringing in the equity sources, lining up debt. And, and managing that and, and finding a way to, yeah. in your projections, in your pro forma, looking at when are we going to sell? Who are we lining up for tenants? Managing the cash flows of the project. So there's a lot of aspects to look at. Last thing I really want to touch on on this development side of things is, as you've kind of noted here, it's it's so crucial to have the right team, the partnership. Like you said, your partner has a lot of experience in, in yeah. construction. You kind of lean on him and he leans on you for the, the capital raising and equity sources and, and strategic planning. But also from the consultant side, bringing in engineers, surveyors, architects, how do you find the right team? What are some tips there?
1: Okay, well, that, you know, it's funny you bring that up. Um, I got to be careful because I don't know who all listens to this, but uh, uh, your team is so important. I've learned just lessons that I, I wouldn't even, I would tell you over a beer or something like that, but probably not in public. But here's the thing: so um, you want your architect and your general contractor to get along. That's huge. Um, you want to make sure that your general contractor ha- has experience with their subs, because at the end of the day, I don't want to hear all the 101 excuses why the drywaller got in a fight with the plumber and the this and you know it's like no, I, that that's 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 your job, right? But ultimately, it will come back on you. Uh, so it's not always about getting the cheapest. And I think that that's maybe where some people get caught up. It's really about uh, certainty about executing on time. It's about, um, in my mind, it's always about being transparent. Uh, I remember when we were doing our industrial development, I'm like, guys, here's our contracts for what we sold this for. So our, our upside is locked in, but my downside, like in terms of my costs, like every time you come to me with an, with another cost, like that eats into my profit. And I said, "If you want to keep doing business with me, then I got to be profitable. Now I know you have to be profitable or you go out of business, so we need to figure this out together. So I'm always trying to be I'm not like trying to squeeze a guy for every last dollar, and so I think that they respect that, but at the same time, they have to understand that um, if I don't make money on this deal, A, they will probably never work with me again, and then that hurts them. So I think as long as people take like a long-term approach and, and view to doing business, then, uh, uh, then you can, then you can do that. I guess one other thing I'll just mention. So when I'm vetting a team, I'm looking at everything. Uh, so I'll set up multiple meetings and did they show up on time and did they come prepared and were they engaged? And I'll ask them questions and you know what I mean? Like, like you're testing them for two months before you even, even do the business. And, uh, some guys you know, like some architects you'll ask them to do some sort of a rendering, and they'll charge you fifteen hundred dollars for two hours of work and it's just garbage and it's like you know what there's no relationship here and uh, and frankly you know i'm I'm unimpressed by what it is that you created and presented to me and you're kind of uh, dating before marriage right totally. you're kind of testing them because you're setting up a partnership on a
0: complex deal, a complex transaction that's going to involve a lot of time and effort and, and working hand in hand with these these people and these partners and consultants so it is so important to to vet them and no I can see that you've stressed that <laughs> from numerous angles how critical it is I know you were kind of you're probably holding back even you know what, what all you want to yeah. share like you said publicly but I think my listeners can take a lot away from this and finding the right team and how crucial that is even analyzing and who you're going to invest with right and from a passive standpoint into a development deal or a, a value add project or a stabilized asset. It's just, it comes down to the team who you're dealing with. Right? So Shane, I want to be respectful of your time here. And so I want to start wrapping it up. I want to take it to our final four questions. We're just going to give short to the point answers. So what is your favorite real estate or business book?
1: Oh, you know what? I just read this and it's not really a business book, but it's called your brand is your stand by Patrick Gentempo. And it's all about having a really clear vision. So it would be more of a business book. And I refer it to all my clients. I love it. I think it's it's just a tremendous book.
0: Awesome. I haven't heard of that one. I'll have yeah. to make note of it and check it out. Yeah. And of, of course, I'll have to uh, still read your book, Club Syndication, which I yeah. uh, mentioned that I've already uh, downloaded yesterday. and actually ordered as well. So I'm...
1: I thought I saw that come through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, ma- I'll mail you a copy. Yeah. I'm excited
0: to get the hard copy. Perfect. So what is one thing that you wish you knew? When you got started in real
1: estate investing? Um, I think I would have, uh, it would have been extremely valuable to take the time to really think about what it is that I wanted to get out of real estate. I was very opportunistic for a long time and uh, that pulled me in many different directions. And it was good because I got a lot of experience, but had I just stayed focused and on, a, on one track, I'd be way further ahead than I am today. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect.
0: So what's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate?
1: Um, I, so I have, a, a morning routine and so my morning routine is usually get up at five and then I, uh, I do a little bit of kind of yoga and, and some breathing exercises. And then I spend about 90 minutes on my number one priority, uh, for whatever that is. Like generally in the week, I start off with my top three goals, rocks, whatever you want to call them. And then number one, I just work through it until it's done. Number two, work through it till it's done. But I spend the first 90 minutes of the day before I do anything on that uh, single task, just so that I'm, if that's all I get done in the day, I feel like it was a success.
0: Yeah, because I mean, you're prioritizing high priority tasks that are really going to move you forward in personally and in your business, right? So that's really crucial to take, take away from that. So when you're not working and keeping busy with, with real estate and development, what do you do for fun?
1: So the, the stuff that I do for fun, uh, so I've got three kids and, and my wife, and we like to go to the mountains. Uh, so my two girls are skiing this year. So in the winter, it's skiing. I'd say in the summer, um, we do some mountain biking. Uh, we're big into water skiing. And so it just, uh, yeah, it just kind of depends on where we're at. But outside activities is, is best for us for sure.
0: No, that's awesome to hear. And Yeah, I'm a big advocate of water skiing as well. I I don't hear too many people that say that that's something they do. I grew up on a boat and just have loved it. Being a kid growing up, uh, water skiing, barefooting, uh, kneeboarding, weightboarding, tubing, just all those fun things. So, And even skiing in the winter here because we've got some great mountains that I'm sure you've probably visited um, in our neck of the woods in BC.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. um, Last question here. How can our listeners get in touch
1: with you? Probably the best is just to check out my website, Shane Melanson, M E L A N S uh, O N. You can just go there. My resource with my book and podcast and stuff like that. You can check it out, and uh, lots of videos that I just put out for for free, similar to stuff you're doing, right? Just to just to basically help people, right? Figure out commercial real estate isn't for everybody, and and I and I don't think uh, um, you know. Having a little bit of information to figure out whether or not it makes sense, I think, is is uh, is a good first step. So,
0: yeah, and you should definitely go, listeners, check out Shane's website. It's packed with a ton of value. I was I was surprised. I was I was sitting in my car while my wife was in at Costco, and I that's when I downloaded your oh, nice. or, your book there. And I'm like, holy cow! Like, there's so much resources here. There's yeah. so much value that you're sharing with people that visit your site. So that's really cool, um, listeners. You should go check that out for sure. But Shane. It was really awesome to have you on the show today. I really appreciate your time and all the insight you've added to commercial real estate and development and sharing with my listeners. So thanks again and talk to you soon. You bet. Thanks, Marcus. Okay, take
1: care. Yeah, bye for now. Bye.
0: If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top-quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.